0: Welcome back to Scripture Central. I'm Lynn Hilton Wilson, and this is John W. Welch, who I will refer to as Jack. We feel so honored to be able to talk about this sacred text. And as we begin um, each week for Come Follow Me with Scripture Central, you can find all of the notes. You just go to Book of Mormon Central, and you'll be able to find the John W. Welch notes for this. In addition to it, the notes, a Jack has prepared a fabulous book for us that's much shorter. shorter. It's like a Cliff Note version of our um, lessons that we're going to be talking about. So, if you want to follow along, you can either check the long version for those of you who really want to get all of the details, or a Cliff Notes version right here that's available um, either online or at the bookstore. But we're thrilled to be able to be here today.
1: Yes, and, and Lynn, the entire archive is a wonderful resource. I hope people will go there and find lots of things, all the the books and articles, so much has been written on the Book of Mormon about the background of this story. And we're beginning, and the last time we talked about the title page, and I think it's interesting that Moroni, of course, writes the title page knowing how the story is ending.
0: Yeah, he's very familiar with all the details of Nephi all the way down.
1: He knows how it's all going to turn out. But what do you make of the fact that Nephi and Lehi, they didn't know that at the beginning.
0: In fact, even in the text, it says not knowing beforehand. You know, they, they're completely walking by faith. It's a very different story. And it's not a journal. Nephi's writing his text that we have, anyway, of 1 Nephi. What do you think? 30 years after? About 30 years, years after? later. So he's still got a little bit of historical perspective. And Jack, in his vision, he gets the vision of the world. But it's different, I think, when you have to walk the steps of life.
1: Exactly. He he doesn't know where they will end up and how this will work. He knows they have to leave Jerusalem but they live in a world of great uncertainty. The world is just...
0: 600 BC What's important about 600 BC? You know, I just love the stuff that Nibley has written on this. It's the most advanced time in the history of the world that we know of. With so much travel, the Phoenicians are building boats and the Greeks are starting to come up with their ideas. And it's really an advanced... In fact, Hugh Nibley says... This is not just a guest date that a young boy is saying, let's start a story in 600 B.C. This is absolutely the best time to start a new civilization, the best time to be traveling because people knew how to travel and their languages were known by each other. Starting out in verse two, he says, I make a record in the language of my father, consisting of the learning of the Jews and the language of the Egyptians. And who would have known in the 19th century that that was such a thing? And now we have so many records where people are doing exactly what Nephi said. Egyptian was well known, and people are using the Egyptian alphabet in their own languages.
1: Yeah, and that tells us that Lehi was probably a caravaneer.
0: I know. Brother Nibley says he's a merchant. He's going back and forth.
1: And he knows his way around.
0: Brother Tvednis thinks he was also a blacksmith of some sort.
1: You have to be.
0: If you're going to be traveling, you've got to be making your own tools, and yeah.
1: So it, there's a lot of these little details that make this story really come to life. And it's a wonderful and important story. You say 600 B.C. was a time of of not just turmoil, but fundamental beginning. Uh, Buddha comes from that same time period. And the Greek, like you say, the awakening of the Greeks... Nibley and others call this the axial period because it's the axis on which so much in world history turns. And so out of that axial period comes the Book of Mormon, which, of course, is the clearest statement of what the real big picture of the world is all about.
0: And as we talk about the Book of Mormon today, the things that are well known and well understood, I think we probably won't spend as much time on because we want to spend the time on the things that are a little bit harder to understand. But I feel the history really allows you to appreciate this as a divine work of God. You know, this is a marvelous work and a wonder. And unless you realize how perfectly it fits in, and as we see the Hebraic poetry and all the stylistic things and the little references to the law of Moses and the Judaic culture in Jerusalem as the Babylonians are going. Let's point them out.
1: Right there in Jerusalem. Is Lehi a lone ranger? Is he the only prophet that's there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Don't I, you I, love I, this point? Yeah,
0: oh, I do. And he's, he's preaching all through chapter one at the same time that we've got Jeremiah. Now, the Book of Mormon mentions is Zenic and Zenos and um, Nahum, but we also have Uriah that's mentioned at the time of... Do you remember he's mentioned in the Book of Jeremiah yes, as a prophet right. who is... They're, they're furious that he's going to say Jerusalem's going to be destroyed, so they kick him out. He goes, he goes in, fleeing as a refugee to Egypt.
1: And that was his mistake because the ruling party in jerusalem had connections with egypt and so they were able to extradite him require the egyptians to send urijah back and they kill him oh do they ever In a, i'm sure it was a public execution and the, jeremiah tells us that urijah wasn't even given a burial now that is the worst humiliation
0: for the for the deceased
1: member. and for the family that you could do in that world and, Do you think Lehi was there watching that?
0: Well, it's a much smaller city. The city of Jerusalem, we still call it a city Um, by 600 BC. You know, you've already lost your northern um, tribes. You've already, we've already had, one of the deportations. So Daniel and maybe Ezekiel have already been taken to Babylon. And so the wealthy and the educated young men have already been taken. And the second deportation to Babylon is just on the heels. And then we have the third deportation and the complete destruction. So it's not like Lehi is speaking In a vac, you know, everyone knows that the Babylonians are coming, and there's trouble coming, and they're right overshadowing them with these deportations. So the city is smaller. I think Nephi and Lehi would have been well known. You know, when you're dealing with less than ten thousand people within the walls, archaeologists have lots of numbers, and I appreciate that. But we're not dealing with a large city. We're dealing with a town, and people knew each other. And on something like an execution, I think people heard about it, but. Lehi's land is out of town, so I don't know if the young boys would have heard it, if they were out working in the farm. I, I don't know exactly what the situation was, but I, I I do think it says in chapter 1, verse 1, you know, he's he's from the area of Jerusalem. He's working in this town.
1: We know that Lehi, even if he wasn't there, he would have heard of it. When Lehi goes out and prays because he's so concerned about this, His first vision is a pillar of fire on a rock. We don't know what that rock was.
0: But we know what the pillar of fire is. In the Old Testament, it's always the Shekhinah.
1: That's right. And then God says to him, and now, Lehi, I've got an assignment for you. I'd like you to go out and deliver that message. And I think he said, wait a minute. Didn't Uriah already try that?
0: And Jeremiah and um, Ezekiel and yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: yeah, It didn't go so well.
0: No, we have so many prophets.
1: But he's not, God is not giving up. Why does he need to have Lehi do it again?
0: You know, we need second witnesses. We need third witnesses. And I feel like people don't have a newspaper to read. Well, I'm sure they had some sort of things to read, but they communication is completely different. You have to have voices in every quarter. Uh, It was very needed to communicate the message, shape up or you're going to be destroyed. And it's already happening. In fact, it's interesting to me. That both Jeremiah and Ezekiel say, go to Babylon. That's the plan. And Lehi is told, don't go to Babylon. You, you're you going to have a different And don't experience. go to Egypt. And Well, everybody says don't go to Egypt, but that's politically what they wanted to do.
1: And Uriah had tried that.
0: Well, and Jeremiah is taken there. So the only ironically. way out
1: is Arabia.
0: But let's keep talking about his vision. So he has this pillar of fire. It's on the rock. And he's called by God, like so many prophets are.
1: And we have multiple witnesses like this today, too. Sometimes, don't you think, when we listen to General Conference, we've kind of heard some of this before, but the message has to be repeated over and over again.
0: And each time the message has a little bit more or a little different meaning for me. How many times have I read First Nephi chapter 1? And this time through, I have got different things out of it. If we approach our scripture study with prayer, I think the Lord will guide us to learn what we need to learn.
1: Absolutely. As many times as it takes, his long-suffering, tender mercy will keep teaching us until we finally get the point. So as Nephi proceeds, uh, the next thing he wants to tell us is about Lehi's vision, that Lehi comes home, he's exhausted, he collapses on his bed, and then he has what is called a throne theophany.
0: He sees God on his throne. Theo, God, yeah.
1: There are other uh, instances in the Old Testament where God is seen on his throne.
0: Isaiah chapter, Isaiah chapter 6, Ezekiel. I, we can go through the whole list. Amos, many, many, many prophets. Oh, Moses, burning bush, yeah.
1: But none actually give us the same details that Lehi does. And when he sees God uh, sitting upon his throne, surrounded by numberless concourses of angels in well, the Well, that sounds like the book
0: of Revelation.
1: Of, praising and singing praises to their God and yeah. so on. This is an experience that many, have, many of the prophets will see. Now, when uh, Nephi preserves this text, and it was probably also in the book of Lehi, which we don't have, Alma would have known about this because Alma was a record keeper. And I love to point out that when Alma has his conversion experience where he, three days and three nights, is at the point of death. And he finally says, I remembered my father speaking of the coming of one Jesus Christ, a son of God, to atone for the sins of the world. And I cried out within my soul, O Jesus, thou son of God, have mercy upon me. And then he's completely converted and changed. And then Alma says that he was almost destroyed. But now, how he wanted to be, as our father Lehi saw, God sitting upon his throne. And he quotes this verse in First Nephi chapter 8. Alma uses that to say how he felt now, wanting to be in the presence of God. I love it. And wanting to be with those angels praising God. There are 21 words of Lehi that are exactly in Alma 36.
0: So nice dealing with a um, attorney who counts things and knows things like this. <laughs>
1: yeah, And we know how that happened. Y- you know, Joseph Smith just pushed the cut and paste button. And... Oh,
0: yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, no, oh, no, 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 maybe no, not. No, 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 maybe not. <laughs> no.
1: I mentioned this simply because it shows how accurate the translation was. It's not a loose translation. We can then rely on the accuracy of these words and of the details that we're being told. Details matter. Background matters. Uh, the record is true. And the more detailed we can be in our life, we attend to the details. And uh, being uh, meticulous about our obedience to the laws and, and careful about what we say and do.
0: In the words of Section 76, valiant in our testimony. It's not its not just being careful. We need to be valiant too. Yeah, but they do matter.
1: Now, Nephi begins his record. It's a personal record. It's interesting that he's, you know, he's taking personal responsibility for what he says. He's giving us what he knows. And sure, it's coming from his perspective. Laman and Lemuel might have had a different side of the story. But Nephi has been called, and he's going to give us the best and most balanced account he possibly can. It's interesting that he does give Laman and Lemuel credit for good things that happen, and he brings in other people. But he makes a point, I, Nephi, having been born of goodly parents, I'm speaking. This is my personal testimony. And this pattern of identifying who the scribe is, who is writing, the record keeper. This is an ancient practice because they didn't have ISBN numbers for publications and so (laughs) on. But at the end, usually at the end of each record, uh, the scribe would give the name, my name, and it's called a colophon Yes. when the scribe identifies who he is and what he's saying.
0: But Nephi's the scribe.
1: Nephi is the scribe. He is writing this. He's making a record of his own proceedings, but he's also building on Lehi's record. Yes. And quotes Lehi and other prophets in the process. Yeah. So these names are important. These little functions give validation. It's the strongest statement Nephi can give us. I, Nephi. It's a first person witness,
0: which I think then suggests this is an ancient text because we don't see that in 19th century writings. And I've read a lot of 19th century writings. Uh, This is another example that Nephi just was spot on. This is an ancient text. It belongs in the ancient world. So in chapter one, continuing on in verse 16, he starts saying, my father had this vision. I recorded it. And then he talks about what happens next. And I'm going to read from verse 19. And it came to pass that the Jews did mock him. So he goes forth to prophesy and they start attacking. And they just like they did with Jeremiah and Uriah and Ezekiel, all of the other prophets, they are attacked. Um, He talks about the coming of the Messiah. And then he gives the initial purpose of the Book of Mormon. And I, I love the idea that it is the tender mercies of God that he wants to show us. But in a few chapters, next week, we'll talk about chapter six. There he says, the purpose of my tent is to bring people to God. And his God, of course, is Jehovah. It's to bring people to Christ. So by showing us the tender mercies, that is, I think, a sub theme of the major theme that he discusses in chapter six, which is to come unto Christ which is the whole purpose of the restoration, is to yeah, bring beautiful. souls to Christ. <laughs> it's the Book of Mormon. I love it.
1: Why do you think he talks about tender mercies?
0: I don't know, Jack.
1: I don't know either, but aren't all mercies tender? So sometimes you think God speaks a little more bluntly and a little more forcefully. <laughs> yeah. And uh, sometimes very gently.
0: And, you know, as we look at Nephi's record, um, the tender mercies are are spotted between very horrific Experiences too, and so he holds on to the times when he feels God's love.
1: And does Nephi show that same kind of concern and love toward, like Laman and Lemuel? I and mean, <laughs> yeah. while he's writing this, yeah. you know, at it's that so time he bad. knows he knows that Laman and Lemuel aren't going to go with it, yeah. but he does exhort them.
0: Oh, and he Lehi
1: does. does too. Oh, yes. And in that chapter two, uh, we do see. Lehi modeling that kind of tender instruction to his older two sons, uh, Laman and Lemuel. And when you think of the patience of Lehi, uh, as parents, we, we need to also sometimes be firm, but other times very tender.
0: Let's go look at chapter 2. He has a, Lehi has another dream, and he's told to take his family. So he is constantly being directed by God. It's interesting, as he describes taking his family, he says, we didn't take much with us. Um, and yet, he was able to leave in, a, in an instant. He's completely prepared. He's got his, not only his year supply, but he's got his 36-hour kit, whatever. You know, he says in chapter 2, verse 4, he took his family and provisions and tents. The fact that he had tents, let me know there's got to be camels. Because those tents, if your family's going to live in them, are huge. Some Bedouins now have three camels just for the poles of one large tent. And the tent becomes such a significant part in the rest of the story. If you count up how many times the word tent is mentioned, you'll just start losing your fingers and toes. You know, Going to the tent of his father, I see this as an exodus cycle. I see this as the children of Israel are returning to their exodus. And I also think a tent is a tabernacle.
1: It's the same word in Hebrew.
0: Yes, exactly right. Yeah. And so the idea that they are traveling with something holy and they are leaving the temple that is in Jerusalem that has become corrupt and they are now going back to the wilderness in a tabernacle. And this is where sacred things will now happen is in the tent. The scriptures are read there. The visions are received there. And I think as they go south, you know, it's quite a ways just down to the Gulf of Aquaba. It says a three days journey after they get to the Red Sea. It's 190 miles on Google Maps. But, you know, they were not following Google Maps You know, They've got these little—the Frankincense Trail was pretty well marked along the Dead Sea. And I assume that they were traveling on a well-known path because they don't need any direction to get down there. There's no Liahona yet. You know, they're just following this well-known trail. And the family is traveling um, because Lehi's life is endangered probably quite quickly. And a camel can go 60 miles in a day if they're on a march. But if you're traveling with a family, I assume they had some animals, but it doesn't mention any herds. So could they be going 30 miles a day? You know, if I were walking, I couldn't do it. I, I backpacked 20 miles a day and I was going as fast as I could in the daylight hours. But I feel if they're on a camel's, they may have been able to go more than 20 miles a day. So between 10 and 30 miles a day, depending if they're walking or riding um, and how much they're carrying, but if they're carrying provisions, they're probably on the animals and the animals are going lickety split and that's how it's pacing them. But as they come down this, you know, 200 miles plus minus 50 miles, whatever it is, they then set up camp. And let's talk about their first camp.
1: The place where they camp is actually a very protected area. And, of course, you have to have water if you're going to stay any length of time. And so there was a protected valley with a very steep cliff, walls, and a river running through it. Nephi goes out of his way to describe this place.
0: And he talks about that the water is running all the time and it goes into the Red Sea. People have been looking for this and looking for this and and unable to find it, not only because of the wars in that area, but also because the Frankincense Trail didn't lead you to a body of water that would run year round. Now, most water just runs in the winter time in an area where you only get um, winter rains. But it sounds like this area has had some a lot of archaeological evidence that suggests we may have found it. And I'd encourage uh, everybody to go and look at our videos on this. We've got it here on Scripture Central, on Book of Mormon Central, of some of the work that's been done and research to find a very narrow little channel that goes out to the Red Sea. And on a rainy year, the water will run all year long. It's a fertile place. They can gather seeds there. And moreover, there's a beautiful valley where the camels would have had plenty to eat. And it sounds like they stay there for quite a while. This valley of Le- Lemuel and the river of Laman. But I think it's also interesting, before we leave this, they call it um, the names after their sons to give them encouragement, to say, I have hope in you. I know you can do this. But they it says, we called it this. They call the valley, the river. Then it says, we called the next place Shezar, And we called the next place. But then it occasionally says it was called so notice as you're reading the text is this a place that lehi is naming or is this a place that is an actual like jerusalem was actually a place known and we should be able to find archaeological evidence for those but the fact that they use this as a base camp and they're there for a while um before Lehi gets the message of go back and get the records is fascinating to me. Why didn't Lehi get that dream when they were in Jerusalem? Why send the boys back weeks and weeks of journeying in a dangerous land? And now the Babylonians are coming in again to make their second deportation as they're sneaking in.
1: Well, there may be an answer to that. Uh, uh, Lehi has to get out of town quickly. The plates are in the custody of Laban, who is a guard over a group of at least 50 soldiers, and they are in the temple complex, for Lehi to have gone there and asked for the plates. You know, even when the four sons go in and talk to Laban, he's not very friendly. But if Lehi had tried that, the same thing that had happened to Uriah probably would have happened to him. So they need to leave quickly.
0: The Lord wants us to go through hardships to grow and it could have developed faith or it could have developed anger. And we see both reactions in the family. Um, I'm also fascinated with that trip going back that Lehi, um, you know, asks all four sons and Nephi says, he prays for the Lord to soften his heart. He's going to follow the flow. He's going to follow his brother, but he prays. And that's when he says, I will go and do the things which the Lord hath commanded for. I know the Lord giveth no commandment unto the children of men save he shall prepare a way for them to accomplish that. And I have seen that over and over. Anytime I feel overwhelmed, the Lord will prepare a way for you to accomplish what he wants you to do.
1: And Nephi remembered that. I mean, look at the detail of the story that he's giving us. He remembers this many years later as he's writing this personal account. I don't think Lehi's record would have had much of that in it. But this is Nephi's Nephi's side of the story. And he he does tell us some important things about getting the plates and the importance of those plates. Okay.
0: I think everybody knows the story pretty well. They try. They're rejected. They're called robbers, which is significant because there's a difference between a robber and a thief.
1: That's right. And what's the difference?
0: Well, one's a local and one's an outsider. You tell me more.
1: Well, uh, a thief is like a pickpocket or a shoplifter, just somebody local.
0: They get their hand slapped.
1: Yeah. And a very minor Punishment. If you steal a chicken, you have to give back two, for example. Yep. But a robber, robbers come in bands. They uh, they are in groups. And of course, you have four sons. They look kind of like a, a band it of says robbers. They're
0: large in <clears throat> stature.
1: But the robbers, if you are a robber, uh, this is like a, a bandit. Now our word bandit means they are in a band. And uh, so. Bandits were among the the worst enemies of civilization in the ancient world. And when they come, they are treated as, uh, as marauders and they are enemies and They're put to death.
0: And do you think Laban, it says Laban is from the tribe of Joseph, and Lehi is from the tribe of Joseph, and these were the plates of the tribe of Joseph. Now, I remember back in the Old Testament, after the days of King Solomon, you could live anywhere. It didn't matter if you were in the north or the south. If you wanted to worship the temple, if you believed in Jehovah, your people would have come south. So it doesn't surprise me that we have a lot of different tribes in the south, even though 400 years earlier, they may have had property up north. But now, at the time of the Babylonian uh, exile, they're living in the south. But I'm fascinated with the fact that Laban is calling them outside marauder, bandit, robbers, even though they would have been somewhat related to him. Did he know them? Is this Uncle Laban?
1: But being a robber doesn't describe your genealogy. It describes your behavior.
0: Ah, which makes it even worse. He's calling a Distant relative, whatever it is that's right you're you're a traitor I am calling you, even though I can tell you're Jewish I can tell or I tell you're an Israelite um but um i I am going to refer to you as an enemy, and then of course, the story continues on, and Nephi says, Nope, we're not going to do this, and the poor guy gets beat up. I'm standing up for his brothers. I'm sure most brothers had a few f- fisticuffs at some point, but these brothers really take him down, and he says, nope, I'm going,
1: but the angel, of course, stops them. And then, like you say, Nephi goes alone.
0: I think it's significant that an angel comes to reroute someone completely. You know, if if you're doing what's right, the spirit usually nudges you. If you get an angel, that's like getting a spanking.
1: Nephi does then go alone into Jerusalem. And he makes a big point of telling us that he did not know whatsoever thing he would do. So he hasn't planned it out. He says, I don't know how this is going to work he also goes without any weapons. Uh, He's unarmed. So when he finds Laban drunk and right there on the corner of a street as Nephi was going toward Laban's house, there he wonders, well, what do I do next? And that's when the Spirit speaks to him and says, slay him. And this is a terrible thing.
0: Oh, he's a young man. I presume he's 14 or 15. Yeah, he's scared.
1: But something very important is at stake here. And the Spirit says, Slay him, for the Lord has delivered him into thy hands. And Nephi then thinks, Well, gee, I hadn't, hadn't really ever thought about doing this. I really don't want to. And the Spirit has to then give a second message.
0: I have delivered him.
1: And The same words are given again, slay him, for the Lord has delivered him into thy hands. Now, that expression, the Lord delivers him into his hands, comes from Exodus chapter 21, verse 13, where the law of excusable homicide is given. Exodus 21 is a, a chapter giving explanations about what's in chapter 20, which are the Ten Commandments. In the Ten Commandments, it just says thou thou shalt shalt not not kill. Kill. But now we have an explanation, and there are some occasions when you can kill. One of them is if the Lord delivers him into your hands and you have not been lying in wait and come presumptuously, in other words, pre-planned on what you're to do. So there were those requirements in order. It's a very narrow exception.
0: Wow, Jack, that's powerful.
1: That exception was quoted to Nephi by the angel. angel,
0: He's quoting scripture, and angels usually do quote scripture. Isn't that amazing? But Joseph wouldn't have known that.
1: Well, that's the point. How many people you didn't know until I just told you that this is coming from Exodus 21. But how big was the scripture, the collection of scripture in Lehi's day? They don't have the Old Testament.
0: No, it's not a closed canon anyway. They have, but they do have the Torah. They They have the Torah. They have the brass
1: plates. Yeah. And they would have been taught that in primary. They would have read that in the synagogue. They know this text by memory. They say young
0: men started learning it at age five.
1: And so when the angel quotes these words, Nephi is assured. Okay. This is precisely an exception. I love it. To the ordinary rule. Now people say, "Well, it's awful that it happened," and some people maybe even have tried to use this as an excuse for intentional, pre-planned killings. But that is not what the law says. If you pre-plan,
0: then it's not then you're
1: not within the Lord's doing. So Nephi uh, does go forward with it, and I'm sure it was uh, traumatic for him.
0: Oh, I'm sure.
1: But the the value of the brass plates are treasured and that's why they are kept and used so much for the next, you know, five or six hundred years at least until Jesus comes. This is their body of Scripture.
0: I also feel like this goes right back to what Nephi says in chapter 3. The Lord will magnify him to do what is required. He just told his dad, I know. The Lord will giveth no commandments, save he shall prepare the way. And then here we have a perfect example. He's now showing us his thesis is now being demonstrated with an example.
1: And this is so exceptional because of the high stakes and the importance of having the scriptures. Now, we can relate to this to some extent because the scriptures are just that important to us as well. Now, we're not asked to go and do what Nephi had to do in order to get a copy of the scriptures. We give them out to everybody in the world.
0: <laughs> Happily.
1: But we should value what we have at the same level that Nephi valued and Lehi had the records, yes. the prophecies Amen. that they had. And we wonder why Nephi put so much Isaiah and Zenos and other records Uh, into his own copy.
0: We did not have the brass plates, and yet those are scriptures that were missing. But you want to talk about Zoram? So Nephi now has killed Laban. He's put on all of Laban's clothing. And here comes... I don't... I, I, we don't know his nationality, but we know he's an important person because he's got the keys. So if you have a key and remember keys are hand carved, the person who has them usually had them on his, around his neck, their locks and keys weren't very common. Then a very important person has these. What else do we know about Zoram?
1: You know, Zoram was the servant of Laban and uh, uh, Laban was the commander of 50. So He's probably the temple guard.
0: And in the Old Testament, you can be a servant for seven years if you're a fellow Israelite, or you can choose to stay your whole life. That's the point. And I think he was probably one of those unless he was a foreign captive. And then it doesn't have to be seven years because he wants his freedom enough to go with them. But I also think that Zoram may have been a foreigner and therefore wanted his freedom. But I also think he had a soft heart. He, he was sensitive to the spirit. Or else he wouldn't have been able to make that oath. That oath is so fascinating. He makes an oath and they stop worrying about him.
1: Well, oaths were very powerful. The oath that Nephi uh, gives to Zoram that uh, if you come with us, you will have a place with us, which means basically, now Nephi can't adopt Zoram.
0: He's a brother. He's but, a son. Yeah.
1: But Lehi will honor that promise that Nephi has given when ne- Lehi learns How Zoram gets there. I'm sure when they, you know, when the group gets back to Lehi, they say, Here, Dad, we're home. And look who we brought. And he says, Who's this? Yeah. And Nephi says, Here's the story. And here's what I promised him. And at that, Lehi then adopts Zoram. And we know that because there are then seven tribes of Nephites. The Nephites, Jacobites, Josephites, Lamanites, Lemuelites, Ishmaelites, and Zoramites.
0: What about Sam?
1: Sam is not one of the Samites. There's not a Samite tribe.
0: That's listed in there. Okay. We can talk
1: about that later when we get to Second Nephi chapter 1.
0: Okay. okay. Okay, so Zoram is the seventh tribe now.
1: So he is, the Zoramites are a one of the seven tribes. Yes. And that shows that Lehi has recognized Nephi's promise that Zoram will have place with them.
0: And in our world, if someone says, oh, I won't do it, I'll be good, that doesn't mean they're going to be good. I want to see some evidence. But these, everybody believed him. His word was as good as his... I just love this. Very different world. Very different even than the 19th century. This is another example of an antiquity evidence in the Book of Mormon.
1: Yeah, when an oath was made in the ancient world, you would rather die than violate your oath amazing and especially when you swear by god and Nephi does as the lord liveth okay then you are you are completely bound and loyal to that promise and people can count on that amazing now why do they have to have Zoram come with them though why can't they just oh
0: because he was a witness
1: oh well he, he they've taken the plates he's carrying them yeah. out with them And
0: he could turn us into the police. You know, he could go. They could traffic him down and get him.
1: They're finished if Zoram won't come with them. Yeah. I guess the alternative was, Zoram, we've got a deal for you.
0: Come with us or we kill you. (laughs) But they weren't. They were not bandits. I don't think they could have done it because I don't think they could or
1: would have done that. But Zoram also, I think, realizes that if he lets the four brothers go with the plates and he goes back and they they say to him, you, you were on guard. This was your job. And you were fooled by these people?
0: Yeah. He's in bad shape either way. That's right. Because the plates are gone. Yeah, he's in bad shape either way. Let's jump ahead to chapter five. And I want to just talk a little bit about Soraya. It's unfortunate that I think that our chapter heading says Sariah is is murmuring or complaining, whatever, because everybody complains. Lehi complains when he gets hungry. Everybody has a period. Even Nephi in his psalm is just heartbroken. I think as a good mother concerned that her sons have been gone for probably over a month um, or perhaps around that period of time, you know, it's been a long journey. But I wanted to emphasize a little bit about Sariah. Because we're told who his family is when they're going. We have no daughters mentioned at this time. They aren't born yet, I don't think. I think they're born later with Jacob and Joseph. But we have Sariah, the first woman mentioned in the Book of Mormon. And it's very evident to everyone who reads the Book of Mormon that there are not a lot of female names. But I want to just pause and say there are almost 100 women that are unnamed in the Book of Mormon. We have a lot of references to women but they are unnamed. And I think more significant than the names is this familial unit. As you look at the Book of Mormon looking for families and looking for women and how do they interact and how are they part of the text, it's fascinating to see the significant role that they are. But it's usually in an unnamed text, which also goes back to the fact that it fits into 600 B.C. We have a priestess in the Old Testament from this time named Huldah. And I see Sariah as a priestess here. And I think it's interesting as we look at what Sariah says, and she spake saying, Now I know of a surety that the Lord hath commanded my husband to flee from the wilderness. Yea, I also know of a surety that the Lord had protected my sons and delivered them out of the hands of Laban and given them power whereby they could accomplish the things which the Lord hath commanded them. See, do you see that? You know, I just love that connection between the way this book is so carefully grafted and compiled is just beautiful. The rest of the chapter 5 now goes on to talk about um. Lehi starts reading the brass plates, and he is ecstatic to find out his genealogy
1: and other things too. Yes. Let's talk for a minute about the brass plates. We'll <laughs> we'll learn later what's on those plates. The first thing that's there is the uh, the five books of Moses. Yeah. the Torah. The, the Torah, and uh, you know, people not too long ago were very dubious about the existence of the Torah that early. Many German scholars of the 19th century came up with the idea that, and maybe it had been around before then, but they certainly amplified it, that the Old Testament was really composed and put together by the Jews when they went to Babylon. Babylon. And now they're in captivity, and so they want to preserve their record, which makes sense. Ezekiel and Daniel and others are there
0: they're prophets writing from Babylon, and so they're saying that perhaps they did the editing and compiling. And,
1: and, and I have no doubt that they did some of that. But I think they're working with texts that predated the destruction of Jerusalem.
0: And as believers in the Book of Mormon, as we read now in the brass plates, not only Isaiah, but we have so many other prophets that are quoted that then contradicts that theory.
1: Is there any archaeological evidence of a biblical text that dates to before the time of Lehi?
0: You know, I, I studied a little bit of archaeology in Jerusalem for a long time, and they searched and searched and searched. But, of course, with the destruction of what are you going to expect? Things are burned. You know, the only thing that would survive is something that is not going to be burned.
1: And any metal would yes. have been immediately taken, melted down, and used for other purposes.
0: And so we have one great archaeologist in the 20th century who began digging just outside the walls of Jerusalem, right off Mount Moriah, uh, down at the base of Mount Moriah. And sure enough, he comes across what is now referred to as the Silver Scroll.
1: And I see, Lynn, that you're wearing (laughs) the Silver Scroll on a necklace. And it's about
0: the same size that it was. And it was rolled up.
1: And why would they have rolled this little scroll up?
0: I think the words that are written on it date to 600 B.C. So it's the oldest scripture we have in the entire um, world in Jerusalem on metal plates. And it is the priestly benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you and may his face shine upon you and be gracious. That is the oldest text. And it's on metal and it's from 600 B.C. and it's in Jerusalem. I think this is one of the greatest evidences we have. Of the brass plates being a reality,
1: it really is. Here's a uh, an enlarged version of that. Uh, that uh, you know, ha- you can get these things as souvenirs in Jerusalem. The silver scroll is on display in the Israel Museum. It's recognized, as you've said, as one of the most important archaeological discoveries of the of our day. And the little scroll was actually rolled up and was put on the body of a teenage girl who died and was buried there. And so the the scroll itself has to be older than the burial. And so it probably dates to uh, Lehi's time. And so here we have a passage from the book of Numbers, Numbers chapter six, right there on metal. And isn't that a wonderful blessing?
0: Jack there's no coincidences the lord directed that when you read the study on that archaeological dig which we have online as well fascinating details the lord is directing his work
1: so the hand of the lord is helping us to understand the backgrounds of these events so that we with confidence can make sense of them when when you want to understand a text you have to know where those statements are coming from who is speaking why they are saying what they're saying, what their cultural expectations are. Otherwise, the words are vacuous and they're without any real kind of assurance that you know what's happening. Like Sariah said, I know with a surety. What was her assurance that God had delivered them? It was that she now had the plates, that they had succeeded in fulfilling the assignment that Lehi had given them, to go back and get the scriptures.
0: I assume she had the assurance also from a witness of the Spirit.
1: And you know, Lynn, I'm grateful that I haven't been asked in my life to go through some of the trials that these people did. I wonder if I would have been as faithful and as courageous as they were. But I know, from what little I know, that the Holy Ghost bears testimony of the truthfulness of this record. These little details are, are just hints pointing in a direction that then ask us to take this record seriously, and I have done that all my life. And as I do, I too receive assurances through the Holy Ghost that this is the will and the word of the Lord for us today. I know that this book came forth at a time when we would need it just as much as Lehi needed his records. It came forth at a time when the priesthood and the leadership of the church needed to be established by Joseph Smith so that we could be guided by prophets today. I know they are the prophets of the Lord and that they speak the truth and the goodness of God, and His tender mercies to us. And I say this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.
0: Amen. And I think that is how we'll end up chapter 5 today, to encourage you all in your scripture study to be prayerful, to seek the Spirit of the Lord, because there is so much truth in these beautiful pages, to approach them with faith and a meek and humble heart, but with lots of questions, and for lots of answers. Check Jack Welch's or uh, John W. Welch's notes on Book of Mormon Central.